I'm going to pray because I need to for myself. I appreciate that prayer. Thank you, Tim. And I heard Jim pray for me this, James pray for me this morning. Appreciate that too. Um, but if I don't pray, then everything comes out really garbled for the first five minutes. So, Father God, uh, you are so good, Lord. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to study your word in depth, Lord, um, to be driven deeper into your word, to spend time meditating on it, to have it rumbling around in my mind for, for so long, Lord God. And I thank you for the opportunity to bring that to the body of Jesus Christ, Lord. God, I, uh, as Tim prayed, cause me to speak the words you want me to speak. Shut my mouth and keep me from speaking the words that you, you don't want me to speak, Lord God. Uh, let your name be praised this morning. Let your word be clear. Open our ears. Pour out your spirit. God, we praise you that you are in our midst and that you are making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we give you the honor and the praise we give you this morning. All to your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I really appreciate the elders and Titan Drive and the way they've been navigating um, these days. Uh, it's not easy. I'm in leadership up at the ranch, of course, and um, it's, it's not easy. Uh, you guys ever feel like the church just isn't very beautiful? Uh, we get a lot of different kind of parents bringing their uh, sons to the ranch, and um, some of them are barely in connection with the church. Uh, they're Christians, but, but not very uh, discipled. Um, others are very mature believers. And just in the last two months, one of our most mature parents was, was writing us about our mask policy, that we weren't masking up enough, um, trying to protect their sons. Um, and uh, we navigated that process two months ago. Uh, and then this last week, as I'm preparing for the sermon, I've got one of our other most more mature dads, um, devoted to Jesus Christ, living by conviction, writing us like crazy uh, for requiring masks at all. Uh, we'd, we'd been kicked out. We got this close to getting kicked out of a bowling alley because uh, that dad's son wouldn't mask up. And these parents had started telling their son, um, do not listen to the ranch when they tell you to put on a mask because it had become such a spiritual conviction for them that we're perpetuating the lie of the government and it's unhealthy for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was no way we were going to come to an agreement on masking and, and all of that. But we had to come to an agreement about uh, we can't be cross-parenting your son. If you're going to be telling your son to not listen to us, that's obviously a big problem. So that fell to me, that phone call fell to me. That was really fun. I handle stuff like that really well. Um, so uh, lots of prayer this week. And um, the church can be so ugly. Uh, the things that were said, uh, I am a Nazi, apparently, um, acting out of fear and cowardice, um, which were things that we came close to saying about the other dad two months before that. I, I, I mean, we're all, we're all in that boat. I'm not trying to vilify this one dad uh, by any means. Um, I remember in church history in a seminary, we were reading Justo Gonzalez's, uh, whoops, History of the Church, I think it's called. Um, it looks like Justo, yes, Justo Gonzalez, volume one. And uh, 
We're reading all the way back to the apostles' earliest days, right after Jesus' ascension, history of the church. Actually, they start in Acts, I think. Looking at the persecutions, looking at um, all the way up until, I think, the Reformation, and then you get into volume two. And I remember this very clear moment of just being disgusted with the church, uh, with the things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I struggled with that. I was reading chapter after chapter of, uh, I, I mean, imagine Martin Luther's day, what he's, what he's looking at, the church doing. That is the church. We can't just say, oh, that's Catholics. No, that was the church, guys. That was, that was us. Um, and, and Martin Luther looking at all this going on. So awesome, Martin Luther did what he did. But then what happened after? I, I mean, Martin Luther and his followers were burning Calvin's followers at the stake and vice versa. Uh, because of slightly disparate uh, theologies that were just a little bit different. Uh, you, you look at the Crusades, whatever you feel about that. You look at the um, Inquisitions. You look at the things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ, whether it's done by the sincere church or not, the true church or not, the things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. And I was really struggling through that. Uh, and at one point, um, this phrase came to mind, uh, and yet... We are the apple of his eye. Now, that's a phrase used of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, so I know I need to be careful to a degree there. The principle stands. God delights in us. He delights in us because of the person of Jesus Christ. He delights in us. And he is making us beautiful. And that can be really easy to lose sight of. And that'll all make sense to Revelation 21 here in a minute. Um, we uh, skipped from the beginning of Revelation here to the end of Revelation to avoid all the really stuff that just nobody can agree about, right? That means that what I'm preaching on, everybody should agree about. <laughs> Said nobody ever. Um, so bear with me. Um, I will take a uh, certain position that, uh, guys, Revelation, you need to hold with an open hand. Our Jesus is coming again. You hold that tight-fisted. And he's making us beautiful, and we will dwell with him forever. And we can praise God and stand in that. But when you get to the timing of the rapture and the millennial kingdom, if, you know, all of that, and, and even details of the New Jerusalem, we need to be careful and, and have that more open hand. Um, so much of our theology we need to have with that open hand. There are plenty of people on the other side of the fence from you that are on their knees sincerely pursuing Jesus Christ and being honest with the word, as far as they're able, uh, that are coming to completely different uh, conclusions than you. Uh, we're going to stand in heaven one day, and we're going to be united, and it's going to be beautiful. Um, so please, hold that with that open hand. So Revelation 21. I'm, I really don't like not just reading the whole passage through first. Um, it's kind of long. Should I do it? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> 9 through 27. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 
12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then came one of the seven angels, verse 9 said, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So who is the bride? Who is the wife of the Lamb? We've seen her before. We'll see her again here. Um, 2 Corinthians 2 says, For I, Paul, feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, he's speaking of Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's in Corinthians. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Uh, he's saying, You are as a bride of Christ. You are the wife of the Lamb. You will be the wife of the Lamb. Uh, it's a betrothal period right now, is that image. Uh, we saw it very recently, Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Um, that was what Jesse was preaching that week, I think. Um, beautiful image. Um, so just quick, right there, boom. Um, and we're going to explore that a little bit more here. You also have Isaiah 52 and 62. We're not going to turn to it, but they picture, um, they picture the bride again. I'll, I'll get a little bit more into detail about what specifically they're looking at as far as the bride. But you have this picture of the redeemed people of God. In the Old Testament, the redeemed people of God were called the, the bride of Yahweh, um, the bride of God, Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, you start getting this picture of a betrothal of the church to Jesus Christ. Um, you also get uh, this imagery going on throughout Revelation. Um, we've talked a lot about Babylon, or Revelation has talked a lot about Babylon. I think we, we didn't spend much time there as far as our own sermons went. But um, 
Babylon is pictured again and again and again throughout Revelation. Uh, in chapter uh, 17, you get her introduced. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Dot, dot, dot. That's verse 2. It describes a lot of terrible things the prostitute did. Uh, and then verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw... And he talks about this woman, and she was riding on a beast, and she was over a bunch of seas. Um, and then verse, chapter 18 describes, uh, well, 17 describes her fall, and then chapter 18 has everybody exulting that Babylon has fallen. Now, theologians disagree all over the place on this. Um, are there two different Babylons? What's going on? Uh, Dr. Walverd would look and say 17 is the ecclesiastical Babylon. It's false religion. It's the impure false church, particularly the church after the church has been raptured, those left behind that kind of marry the state and they kind of do the state thing and, uh, and they, they mar the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so that's this ecclesiastical Babylon that the kings actually overthrow. They get sick and tired of her and they destroy her in chapter 17 is the imagery. Chapter 18 then he takes to the political Babylon, the actual kings and nations and the kind of the, the thinking that goes into all of that, that anti-God behavior. Um, others will look at it and say it's, it's all the same. It's an image of those in rebellion against God, whether it's false religion or the political powers, whatever it is. Babylon started all the way back. You see it in the Tower of Babel, a people that thought that they could claim godhood or work their way back to heaven and unite heaven and earth. Uh, and then you see it with Nebuchadnezzar taking Jerusalem captive. And then you see it, and then you see it, and then you see it. Babylon just keeps showing up and becomes a symbol of rebellion against God. It becomes a symbol of the world system. Uh, Revelation's chock full of symbols. Nobody denies that. The, the reason we all disagree about Revelation is you have to decide, when is this no longer a symbol? When is it literal? And that's so difficult to know. And everybody comes up with a rule and they break that rule all the time, um, but we're right. Um, so open-handed, again, please. Um, the reason I put that passage up there, though, is that the language is so similar. 17, the angel of the seven bulls comes, says, come, I'll show you this, and then he carried me away in the spirit. Well, in 21.9, one of the seven angels with the seven bulls comes, and he says, come, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you the bride of the lamb. Um, so you have the prostitute, now you have the bride. And he carries me away into the spirit. Um, I highlighted the differences. You have a wilderness, which throughout scripture is a picture of godlessness. It's being away from God. And then you have a great high mountain, which throughout scripture is a picture of communion with God. It's coming together with God. Even the Garden of Eden is pictured as being a mountain with, with rivers flowing from it. Um, and, and that's uh, the fall of Satan, that Tyre passage, uh, Isaiah. It actually relates, it, it says specifically that the garden had a mountain on it, which was an image of the truths of heaven. Um, I'm paraphrasing drastically. Um, moving on, though. So, so what would we expect to see? We would expect to see the angel says, come, let me show you the bride of the lamb. Two chapters ago, we saw the bride of the lamb, and she was a beautiful woman getting married to Jesus, covered in the, the deeds of the saints. So here we are in 21, and the angel saying, come, let me show you the bride of the lamb. Oh, am I going to see the woman again? And he goes, and what does he show him? He carried me away in the spirit to great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
Is it a city? Is it a woman? Are those symbols of something? In chapter 19, the woman was a symbol for the church, the body of Christ. Here we have a city called the bride. Is it a literal city? Maybe. Whether it's literal or not, it is definitely representative and symbolic of the church. Regardless of whether it's going to be a literal, structural, architectural, massive, we'll get to that, building, or not, it is definitely representative of you and me and the saints of God. And we know that because the angel says, come, let me show you the bride. And he goes and shows him a city. He doesn't show him the people in the city. It briefly mentions the servants serving the Lord uh, in next week's sermon. Briefly mentions them. He shows him the city. The city, the people of God. Now throughout scripture you get this equation of the land, the nation, the cities, the people. The people are the cities, are the nations, are the land. So you, you get this blurring together regardless. Um, but here when we look at the new Jerusalem, yes, we're looking at our future reality. Are we looking at a literal city that we're going to walk the streets of? Maybe, but absolutely possible. We're going to talk about some of the possibilities, but we're definitely looking at who we are, who God is making us to be, and what that city's made of, or that bride. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. You're going to get a lot of language through this section that talks about these beautiful jewels. Um, they're basically every color of the rainbow. Um, and they're, they're meant to portray this vibrant, bright beauty that is the glory of the Lord. They represent other things as well. We'll get there. So a woman... Is Babylon a woman or a prostitute? Is she a city? Is she the false people of God, the system that upholds them? Uh, on the flip side, the image, is, is the New Jerusalem a woman, a bride, a city, the true people of God? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. Revelation 3. Uh, so 3.12 says, The one who conquers, this is one of the letters to the uh, churches, so we saw this one. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. How literal should we take that? Uh, Never shall he go out of it, and I, will write it on, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. This is the only other place you get the New Jerusalem mentioned other than the chapters we're currently in, in Revelation, I mean. Which comes down from my God out of heaven, which is language that's picked up again in chapter 21. And I will write on him my own new name. So the Christian who conquers, the saint who makes it through, who does not compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ in the face of persecution and temptation to do so, the one who makes it through, I will make him a temple, or I will make him a pillar in my temple, and I will write on him the name New Jerusalem. Ephesians 2, 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We read that and we spiritualize it, we take it metaphorically. He's building us into a temple in which he dwells right now in the Spirit. 
but we read 21, chapter Revelation 21, and we read it as this literal city that we're going to live in. I think the truth is a lot more married than that. Um, we are now an inaugurated, which means it's begun, temple of God, but we will be a consummated city of God. Where the temple is gone, God and the lamb become the temple. Uh, and the temple and city imagery is blurred. And we become the city in which God dwells. 1 Peter 2 gives us some of the similar language. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is that as small for you as it is for me? Oh, it's not too bad. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 is a favorite passage of mine, so I have to be careful not to bring it into every sermon. Um, I failed this time. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. He's, Paul's just been talking about who plants and who waters and who causes the increase. So he says, you are God's field. But now he flips it, and he changes the metaphor, and he says, you are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I, Paul, laid a foundation. Now someone else is building upon it. Let each one be very careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or precious jewels, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I'm sorry, I'll try to slow down. I know I'm speaking fast. Um, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, if I build junk into you by just rubbing up in life with you and being a bad influence, uh, a lot of people will take this as specifically teachers. It has to be teachers in the church and what they're teaching. I would say that's being a little too wooden with it. Um, I, uh, my brother, I was terrible to him. I yelled. I awful to him. I was his introduction to pornography. I, I just, I invested poorly in him so much. In the last day, my brother, who, who is a believer, is going to come before the Lord, and that wood, hay, and stumble is going to burn up. He's not going to go into heaven smelling like smoke, according to this passage. I'm going to go into heaven smelling like smoke. It says, I will make it, the one who did the work will make it, but as through fire. There's some really cool language, a lot of exegetes use here, crispy Christians and <laughs> things like that. Um, my work that I've done in him is going to puff. Uh, but what I've built into him that's gold, silver, precious jewels, which should be familiar language to our passage, we'll get more to it in a minute, um, that's going to last and there will be reward. We all are building into one another as temples of God. The people you do life with, the people you teach, the people you minister to, you disciple, the people you're just hanging out, you think you're just having fun, but you've got those, uh, what's that term? 
those words, those useless words. I don't remember, it was uh, Eric's sermon, um, and I don't remember the phrase, but um, that there will be an accounting for every word we've spoken. Uh, those, those idle words that we speak into our, each other's lives, that's wood, hay, stubble, or are you building gold, silver, and precious gems? And what are we building? Is it just this metaphoric thing? Or are we building the future eternal dwelling place of God by our deeds? Because in chapter 19, it said the bride of the lamb is bedecked, adorned. Her beauty is the work of the saints, the deeds of the saints. What we did on earth made her more beautiful for eternity. So when that bride is no longer pictured as a woman, but is pictured as a city, the place we're going to live with God for eternity, is its beauty and grandeur dependent on the works of the saints today? And I think so. Now, who prepares the works beforehand that we should do them? Ephesians 2 says it's God. Hebrews says God is the builder, the designer and builder of his house. God designs it. God prepares those works ahead of time. But he is using us to build this beautiful city. Whether metaphoric or literal, I really don't care. Uh, like Eric said the other week, if you don't want to take it as a literal hellfire for eternity, you ought to shake a little bit and wonder, what's that supposed to represent? It's definitely not representing something cheery. Well, if the city's not a literal city, it's representing something that's going to be amazing. Hebrews 3, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And that is a major message of John in the book of Revelation, or God through the Revelation to be overcomers, to hold steadfast in the face of persecution, in the face of temptation, to, to live life with ease. Do not compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ. Hold strong that we will be a house of God. Then we get into the measurements of the city. The, measurement, the city had a great high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. On the east, north, west, and south. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. It continues. We get, 100, or we get the number 12,000 in a minute. We get the number 144, all um, multiples of the number 12. Um, this picture of completion this picture of he had the 12 apostles, he had the 12 tribes, he's picked this number up again and again and again to say that God's work, it's God's work, and that it's full. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not literal. It's just one of those numbers that keeps showing up again and again and again. Um, exegetes are going to disagree a lot about the bride being just the church, the bride being the church and Israel, Who's going to be in the New Jerusalem? It's all, all over the place. Well, uh, John Walbert, Dr. Walbert talks about the, the city is going to be for all three of the groups of the redeemed. Old, uh, Israel, uh, the church, which is defined as those that were 
believers after Pentecost or at Pentecost and after and before the rapture. So that's, that's church for him is Pentecost to rapture. If you're outside of that group, you're not the church per se. You're either Israel or you're the Gentiles that are at the end of this chapter that talks about the ethne, um, the nations, which are those who believed that were neither part of Israel or that timeline of the church. I'm not going to land in that place, though that is the dispensational landing pad that I was raised in. Um, I just, I, that seems to, uh, but that's just me. Uh, there are other men who have studied this a whole lot more than me that would give you a different answer in this congregation and, and far beyond. Um, men that I love and respect, uh, I'm just not going to land there on that. The city, though, regardless, um, the gates are the tribes of the sons of Israel. We enter this city through the person of Jesus Christ, a son of Israel. Um, they are our, our gateway, per se, and built on the foundation of the apostles of the Lamb. Uh, it is both. We are united. Ephesians talks about the dividing wall being torn down, and we stand as one body. Uh, we will stand as one body, the dwelling place of the Lord God Almighty. Uh, we will dwell with him for eternity as one body. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod. He whips it out of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. Please don't look at your footnotes to see what a stadia is yet. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which is just to say it's not something unfamiliar to us. It's what you would expect it to be. 144 cubits is 216 feet, I think. So a massive wall. As far as walls go, that's quite large. Um, not large compared to the dams that we would see nowadays. Um, but how about everything else going on? First off, Ezekiel 40 through 48 has almost identical language. A lot of theologians will take that to be the millennial temple. Um, other theologians will take this to mean this same temple. But Ezekiel sees an angel. He's taken up on a mountain. He's shown a city. They take out the rod. They measure it. And uh, very, very similar language, but eight chapters of it. Um, measurement, measurement throughout the Old and New Testament, especially the Old Testament, is a mark of God's presence and completion. It's kind of like don't count your eggs before they hatch. Uh, he's saying they're hatched. It's done. We can count now. Let's take the measurement. It's final. There's a bunch of verses there that I left. So 12,000 stadia, this way, this way, and this way. Um, so how tall is that? We'll look at tall first because that's the one that's kind of hard to imagine, right? How tall is that as a New Jerusalem? Um, 12,000 stadia. Is it, that's the what, Burj Khalifa, tallest building. Do you know how tall that is in miles? We'll just change it to miles. It's half a mile tall. Is the New Jerusalem taller than that? Yeah. Mount Everest, it's 5.5 miles tall. Can there be a city with buildings taller than that? Uh, you better believe it. Um, airplanes fly at about 6.5 miles above Earth's uh, whatever it's called, the earth, um, <laughs> 6.5 miles. And, uh, yes, the new Jerusalem's going to stretch taller than that. How much taller? That's 5.5, 6.5. Let's get into the ozone layer. The ozone layer is from 11 miles above the earth's crust to 16 miles above the earth's crust. Is that where the new Jerusalem tops off? No. Can you see that at all? The Aurora Borealis starts its lowest point is 60 miles above the Earth's crust. The topmost point is 200 miles above the Earth. Is that how tall we're getting here? Is that how tall the New Jerusalem's going to be? Uh, no. The space station floats between 200 and 270 miles. 
doesn't float, it free falls. It's constantly falling, just in circles. Um, it's way up there. It's not high enough. Low Earth orbit ends at 2,000 kilometers, or 1,240 miles. At that point, you get into middle, uh, no, medium Earth orbit, um, and then you have high Earth orbit. Uh, Two-thirds of all of our satellites are in low Earth orbit, weather satellites and stuff like that, over 3,000 of them, or 2,000 out of 3,000, um, are in low Earth orbit. New Jerusalem tops off at 1,380 miles. So two-thirds of our satellites will run into the side of the New Jerusalem. Um, I wanted to go like, wait, does that mean there's zero gravity up at like the higher floors? Uh, but that's not how zero gravity works. Uh, you'll actually just be like 60% of your, if you're right at the International Space Station level, 200 feet up there, uh, standing there, you'll, you'll be 90% of your current body weight, if you were curious. That has so little to do with anything. <laughs> but it's really hard to stay focused when you get into these numbers. Um, in the United States, that's what it, the footprint would look like. You could step into the, if it landed and the gate would, let's pretend like it would be in our parking lot. You could step in to the New Jerusalem, traverse the New Jerusalem, and you would come out uh, on the shore of the Hudson Bay, if that was its orientation, or on the shore just, just into the water of Lake Superior, or Des Moines, Iowa, or uh, Oklahoma City was about 1,380 linear miles from us too. This is a massive footprint, and it's massively tall. I had to do it, I'm sorry. This is the globe, very scientifically accurate proportional globe. <laughs> this would be your new Jerusalem. That's what it would look like from orbit if the new earth was the same shape as it currently is. It's really fun, you get some theologians who think it might be a flat new earth <laughs> so that it could land. Um, I won't get into everything else. Some theologians think this is the new heavens and the new earth. That's it. Uh, and just as we lived, this is a quote, just as we lived on the outside of planet earth, we will live inside the new Jerusalem because he pictures all the crystal talk being this crystal like sphere. It's its own planet, he suggests. Maybe it's a spaceship. I don't know. Um, can it be a literal city that big? Yes. God is God. Uh, he caused a virgin birth, and he breathed everything into being. It's not beyond him in the least. Uh, people want to talk about where would he get such a big pearl that it can be a gate. God is God. <laughs> Absolutely, it's doable. Uh, is it literal? I, I don't know. Is it symbolic? Absolutely. So what's the point of this size? Imagine being John. All the other apostles have been martyred by this point. You're the only one left. Yes, the church has grown. There's a presence. But you're in exile on an island. The church tradition tells us he'd been boiled in oil, burning oil, and survived. This guy's been through, I mean, when was the last time he saw Jesus? Has it been 60 years since he saw Jesus ascend? Maybe he's had vision since then. He kind of disappeared from the scene and just took care of Jesus, his mom. Uh, which is what Jesus tasked him to do at the cross. Behold your mother, behold your son. So John kind of disappears from the scene for a while, taking care of Jesus' mom, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and you will live long on the earth. 
Is that why he's the last living one? Uh, alone, and Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus doesn't just show up a little. He shows up vibrant. He shows up in all his glory and his power. Can you imagine being John in that moment? And he says, hey, as bad as things look, as awful as Rome is being, I've blanked on the name of the emperor. I had it prepared. It's gone. Domitian, maybe, something like that. Awful emperor. Awful stuff going on. As bad as that is, I win. As bad as the church situation looks right now, I am making you beautiful. And it's going to be this big. <laughs> this number that, that you can't even begin to comprehend. What, what, would, what did John actually see? Did he see it as its size or did he get to zoom out? This is massive and this is what your God is doing. No matter where you fall in church history, what a message that is. Don't compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ because this is our inheritance. This is who he is making us to be. It goes on to the 12 stones, the 12 jewels. The same 12 jewels, almost, they think they're the same ones. There are eight that are definitely the same and there are four that they think are synonymous. But they're the same 12 jewels that the high priest wore. So you get this priestly picture. These are the jewels adorning the foundation stones of the walls. No temple. God is the temple. He is there. He dwells among his people. No sun or moon. I, Tim might touch on some of this next week. It, it continues in the next chapter. No sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is lamb. This is why some people think it could be a flat earth, because there's no sun, apparently. So like, you don't need an orbit, so just make it flat. Um, whatever's going on, the emphasis is that God's glory fills us. It makes us beautiful. Isaiah talks about this same stuff. Um, there's a chapter in Isaiah that talks about there being no sun and no moon um, when he purifies Jerusalem. It's a picture of New Jerusalem. And, uh, and that his glory will make us beautiful. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, which in other places in Revelation, glory and honor is praise to God. So whatever else it is, some people want to make it the wealth of the nations. And, and what are the nations? It gets a little complex. Regardless, God is saving for himself a people, and we will bring him our praise, and we will dwell in eternity with him. Those are some Isaiah passages. But nothing unclean will ever enter this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, you get this picture of God protecting it and making it final. He can measure it because the eggs are hatched. This is who my people are, and they will be my people for eternity. Wherever we find ourselves in history, whether it's symbolic or literal, we can look at this passage, whatever hardships we're facing, and we can know who we are, we can know whose we are, we can know what we are, and that he is making us beautiful. He is adorning his bride that we will be with him for all eternity. So whether it's masks or compromise, temptation, lust, 
making, trying to make the gospel easier for people to stomach by softening who God is, whatever it is, hold strong. Don't compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because we have a future that we can barely begin to comprehend. Father God, we rejoice in who you are, Lord, that you are making for your son a beautiful bride. You are making for yourself a people to dwell among, a city, God, a place for eternity where we will, we will shine your beauty, your glory, Lord. We don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, even as far as a literal city was concerned, you gave so little detail compared to where else you describe your temples. But God, whatever it is, it's going to be wonderful, and we're going to be with you. God, we rejoice in that, Lord. And I just pray for your encouragement for those going through hard times. We pray for conviction for all of us, Lord, when we feel tempted to compromise for any reason, Lord. And if persecution is going to be on the rise, if it's going to get harder and harder to discern when to take a stand and when not, God, I pray that we at least will not compromise the testimony of Jesus Christ, that the gospel will be clear, that his glory will be spoken, and God, that you will continue to tie it and drive to, to spur one another on, that we would be convicted by, by the Spirit, by living with one another, doing life together, God, and being accountable to one another, Father. We thank you, Father. We praise you that you are doing a work that only you can do, and we rest in you. And we so look forward to our eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys.